The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Any vehicle leaving Grandstar can only do so with authorization. You know that. I didn't. <laughs> come on. Oh, come You really want the world to be the way you wish it to be and not the way it is? Huh? That icebox is our private property. There is no private property on Grandstar. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 11th, 2013. I'm Robert Vaughn, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to join in on our conversation today and to talk to our special guest. Our special guest today is none other than Robert Metz, founder and president of the Freedom Party of Ontario, political activist, pundit, writer, publisher, editor, public speaker, radio host, fundraiser, organizer, office manager, past candidate in Canadian, federal, provincial, and municipal elections, never elected, always influential. Welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you, Robert. I was wondering when I might ever get invited to appear on the show. I mean, you've been a guest before. I have. My very first time on the show was as a guest. And, uh, yeah, this was an interesting idea you came up with just well, the other day. we've had on our show many guests we found interesting, influential, and controversial, and I thought, just want to put the, the notion out there that this was my idea to have you on as a guest, mm-hmm. uh, so that it's not thought as being self-serving. I thought it was a time that we diverted just a little from the show's usual format to interview someone who I have known for 27 years and who is interesting, influential, and always controversial. My co-host and the creator of this radio program called Just Right, and Bob has appeared on countless hours of radio and television interviews, talk shows, and news reports, being asked questions of almost exclusively a political policy nature. But today, I wanted to discover a little bit more about the man who has become a kernel around which many others have gathered to join in the promotion of an idea, and that idea is freedom. So, we're going to spend the next hour talking about what motivates Robert Metz, what he has done with that motivation, and the power that one person can do to affect change in Ontario and Canada, and even the world. So, Bob, let's start off with a little background information first. Some sure. of the questions that you wouldn't normally get asked out there by the, um, the interviewers on the talk shows. And that is, for example, well, you're, you're a Londoner. Correct. You were born, raised London. This is your Not hometown. born here, no. But pretty much, almost, might as well have been. I was one year old when we Germany, moved Germany, was it? Yes. Born in Germany, I'm the right. only person in my immediate family born, actually, in Germany. My parents were born in Hungary. I was born in Germany. My sisters and siblings and all the rest of my family, all born in Canada. Of course, Metz is a, is a German name. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a town of Metz over in it's Germany in France. France. No, it's in France. Yes. Yeah. Probably Germany at one time. <laughs> Quite likely, yes. And so... You grew up here. What what are your impressions of the public education system that you went through? Did you have any favorite teachers? What impressions did you come out of that? How does that change your or affected your philosophy? Well, 
here in London, I went, I attended elementary school at St. Mary's. My parents were Roman Catholic. At least my mother was. I'm not too sure about my father, but she was the one that ruled on those levels in the house. And so I went to a Roman Catholic school, which was St. Mary's school, and went through the whole Catholic, Roman Catholic upbringing, which we've talked about. I was even an altar boy while I was there. And uh, then from there, went to Catholic Central High School, and from Catholic Central High School to G.A. Weeble. At that time, it was still a regular high school. It wasn't just uh, adult education classes as it is today. And um, I can't really say I had any negative things about education. I would say my education was still pretty positive in those years. We're talking in the 50s as far Mm -hmm. as my elementary education went, and uh, going into the 60s, and then going from the 60s to the 70s as I got into high school. And um, high school I found rather a boring experience, I must say. You weren't challenged enough? Um, Maybe that was the reason. I don't know. I didn't do well in high school. Did well in grade school. Did well in college. Didn't do well in high school. You did, so, yeah. yeah. And, and and the high school experience, um, what was it that you found boring about it? Boy, um, most of the time spent for the little amount learned. It was like. Um, you know, I remember the, my senior years spending most of our time in the in the uh, recreational room playing euchre and other sorts of games, waiting, you know, during the spare periods and going to two or three classes a day and having the whole day wasted that way. And then taking subjects that you figured you're never going to really need, like geography of some remote area. And... Um, but largely, it was a it was a huge babysitting experience. I think I'm at that age. I would have rather been out working, and I did work every summer. That's fascinating because if that was the kind of situation you'd find in a workplace where the workers were sitting around playing euchre all day or for most of the day waiting for whatever they had to do. Well, I wasn't typical. I mean, those were the senior years. I'm not saying yeah. you know because because you had still, more that spares. Would, that would be a complete waste of people's time. The uh, people employers would respect their employees' time. Employees. Would wouldn't really stand for that unless they were been overpaid. Well, sure. And um, it's amazing that the public education system, at least when you went through it, uh, late 60s, I guess this would have been, um, seemed to have no respect for your time. Well, I don't think that's what it was about. I think time wasn't an issue. Time was what you put in. Remember, there was that old joke, only two places count where time counts, prison and school. Mm-hmm. And basically, I remember even having a lot of classes with teachers taking time off with the students, trying to get them around all their, uh, you know, their frustration with, with, with being there and wondering why they were there and not really being taught anything that they felt was going to be useful for them later in life. I think that was a big frustration. And the few times you learned anything in school that sounded like it would be useful, they kind of stopped teaching it. Mm-hmm. Even in history and things like that, there just was never a connection to why you had to know these things. And I think that was the big failing of, of high school. I think if I'd go back to high school today, I'd, I'd have a totally different experience. Just because I would understand the, rele- you know, the relevance of it, maybe it might make me more angry with the teachers. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would realize who the, the better teachers were and the worst teachers were. Had some great teachers, you know. Um, and they weren't. They were, they were always the strict, authoritarian type teachers. Of course. And um, they were the ones that always controlled the class and and got something into the kids that would actually stick with them for a while. Corporal punishment in those days? No, no, no. Never had corporal punishment. Oh, I went through the Catholic system. Yeah. We had corporal punishment. I mean, they had it, but I never experienced it. No. And I never experienced it. That's where that's where our paths diversion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you did your time, yeah. and then you mentioned that you went to college. Want to yep. talk to us about that? Well, I went to Fanshawe College. Ironically, I went in for uh, 
radio television course the first year. Yeah. And it um, wasn't until I was three-quarters of the way through the course to show you how absolutely ignorant I was about what I was doing with my own career. That was the first time I ever heard of the CRTC. <laughs> Already three-quarters of the way through a radio TV course. And I remember our teacher at the time, Jack Nixon, who used to work at CFPL, FM at the time, he's passed away since, um, telling us one day, he says, you know, the CRTC tells you how much uh, time you put talk time on, how, what songs you play, what you're licensed for, the whole deal. And I realized, well, wait a minute, there's no career here in terms of what I was thinking of a business career, being in, you know, in some kind of a competitive career, because that would really limit the field, and it wasn't really impressed upon us that uh, it could be that controlled. Mind you, none of us envisaged the internet and what would explode in, in terms of future technology at the time. When I was going to college, there was basically um, just basic, and we're still at broadcast level, right? And so we were still in that mentality. There were only so many broadcast frequencies to go around. So you and then the, after uh, that, uh, I uh, went to work at a factory, uh, which was called Northern Electric at the time. They went on strike, and I learned really quickly about strikes and unions. And uh, then I went back to college again, that time into a business administration course, which I did very well in, two-year course, graduated with honors and all that stuff. And you eventually and then, became an accountant? And I became an accountant, at, uh, and I worked for a large trust company for a better part of a decade. Um, easiest job I ever had, <laughs> best-paying job I ever had. What did you learn from that? Uh, what lessons did you take away from being an accountant? Um, a lot. Uh, I was an accountant at a very interesting time. This was going into the 70s, and I was working in the mortgage department at, at uh, Canada Permanent at first, and we saw uh, suddenly interest rates coming in at 20%. First mortgage interest rates, you know, 18, oh, 20%, 22%. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were all scratching our heads, what's going on here? And that was my first inkling that it wasn't about finances. It wasn't about what we were doing. It was about something else going on in this weird place called Ottawa. <laughs> you know, I had no, no, I was so... Apolitical? Apolitical. It's, it, it isn't even funny. Wasn't voting. No interest in it at all, right? And then I find out, well, this 22% interest rate has something to do with what the government's doing, although I couldn't understand the connection. It seemed so nebulous and far away. There was no way for me to figure out, well, what's that got to do with Pierre Trudeau? I mean, what's he doing? I liked Expo 67. I had a great time. <laughs> How could anything be wrong with that, right? right. And so uh, I started, put, started asking questions, looking around, piecing things together and realizing, hmm, politics might be an issue. But I still hadn't, hadn't got into politics. It wasn't, I just realized it was a problem and maybe, if anything, it caused me to not vote even more, because that so wasn't what, what got me into politics. So what finally got you involved in politics? Um, one of the silliest things in the world, just got asked by a friend to run for a party I'd never heard of, and just as a favor. Can you do me a favor? Comes in on Friday night, it was Mark Emery, of course. Uh -huh. and he so says, it was working across the street from Canada? It was working Permanent. across the street from Canada Permanent, That's where I was working, store. and we knew each other, because we'd see, meet each other at noon and stuff like that, and talk about books, and comic books especially. We uh -huh. both, that was something we had in common. And... Uh, he just asked, you know, he had run into a problem. He needed a candidate last minute because this other candidate he had picked had ditched in the last minute of the campaign before our nominations closed. So he said he needed a name on the ballot. Would I be willing to do that just as a favor? And don't worry about it. It'll just go away afterwards. And then and, and he will not have wasted his expenses and, and the money and time he had already put into the campaign. So I agreed to do that. And the rest is history. 
<laughs> before before we get into that history, mm -hmm. though, I do want to ask you about your influences, which you, which brought you into the political realm, not in the usual channels of the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the NDP, but into a freedom-oriented side of politics that was, uh, I don't use like using the word fringe, but on the outside, mm -hmm. on the outskirts, on the fringe. No, that's a good. Of, that, that's normal actually, parliamentary I had to procedure. Make the, I had to make that decision. I was asked the first time. I remember running in a provincial campaign. This was much later. This is for Freedom Party now. I was asked by uh, Gord Walker at the time. Uh, he says, "Wow, we really conservative. Like, yes, we really like what you're saying. Why don't you run for us?" And I'm thinking, "Why do you want me to run for you? Why don't you just say what I'm saying then?" <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I, it was obvious to me right off the bat. He doesn't need me to tell the people what I just told them. He can tell them that too. Yes. So could the whole conservative party. Oh no, we want you. I didn't know it at the time, but that's the setup. That's how they destroy new talent and destroy their aspirations and destroy anything that they might want to do that actually would change things. And uh, because the average politician has no idea why he's there. I didn't know that at the time either. This is a long... I'm speaking in retrospect now, looking at my early life, okay? I can't say that I knew these things mm -hmm. at the time I was experiencing them, okay? And what I realize now is that politicians are... Um, hopeless bunch. They all, they all sort of got into politics the same way I did. Somebody asked them to run and they, they did somebody a favor and off they go and they find themselves in the arena and then they don't know what to do with it. So I guess in a way I was lucky I didn't win any elections initially because it gave me time to reflect, to think about, well, what do I want to do with this? And of course how we ended up with a political party in our lap was not something planned either because that began with another experience when, when we started a newspaper in London and, and it all came together with another group of people giving us an officially registered party right in our lap, didn't know what to do with it. And so we, started, we had to think everything out from ground level. We weren't coming into the political arena as a bunch of uh, malcontent, disaffected, unhappy people. We were quite the opposite, actually. We were very content people. We loved Canada. Canada is a great country to live in. Uh, we wanted to keep it that way. And what we were seeing at the time, and this was in 84, we're talking about when I'm getting into the political arena officially, uh, Bill Davis was... was, was um, Ontario Premier, and we were really heading towards the left, and that was a conservative government. Mm -hmm. And so, clearly, when I saw that this was the right thing to do, and I'm not talking about wings now, I'm talking about cor the correct, correct thing, thing to do, uh, I said, well, I can't go with, with this group. They're not doing the correct thing. Don't they see it? Why don't they see it? And I started wondering, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe I don't get it. Because why would all these otherwise seemingly intelligent people be doing these things that I, on the face of it seems to me totally irrational? And now I find out 30 years later, yeah, they were totally irrational and didn't, they didn't care about those things. They had their own goals. And uh, the public wasn't really on that agenda except as the means of financing their goals. So you're entering politics uh, rather reluctantly. You'd rather, oh, yeah. Wouldn't you rather have just been an accountant working at oh, Canada Permanent? Oh, e easy. This, this, I've never worked so hard in my life as doing this and got paid so little and, yet, and been so exhausted all the time. And yet it's the thing that gives me my energy and get, gets me up in the morning. Right? There's no doubt you have a passion for it. And um, I, I don't even know... Hmm. A passion. I, I've, I've tried to explain that to people. How do you give people passion? Um, I don't even know if it started that way. You know, I started realizing 
at one point, yeah, I could ignore politics. And I was in an industry that was very affected by it. And I realized, well, yeah, I might not be interested in politics, but there's no two ways about it. Politics is interested in me. Mm-hmm. And it's interested in everybody. And and knowing now what I know, government no longer is governing, but kind of ruling. And, and, and this controlling attitude has led to the largest single cost and burden that individuals have in this country. Bigger than all the rest of our living expenses combined. Government is the biggest. And yet how much attention do people give to it other than you know give me more of something for nothing i'm going that's not the path to prosperity well we'll give you some more attention in a moment we're going to have a little break and then when we come back some more with our special guest robert metz (sighs) what are you sighing for i'm not sighing (laughs) (laughs) well what have i achieved she's right isn't she it really does make you humble. I mean, I can't get any bills through Parliament. The time's been taken up for the next two years. All right, reform the civil service. Impossible. Catch-22. Why? Well, supposing I were to suggest 50 terrific reforms, who would have to implement them? The, the civil, civil service. service. All right, I'll tell you what. Not 50 reforms, just one. <laughs> what? If you achieve one important reform of the civil service, that would be something. Get me into the Guinness Book of Records. What do you suggest? Make them put more women into top civil servants' jobs. Women are half the population. Why shouldn't they be half the permanent secretaries? How many women are there at the top? Not many. Equal opportunities. I'll have a go. After all, there's a principle at stake. You mean you're actually going to do something out of pure principle? Yes. Oh, dear. Principles are excellent vote winners. Uh, Benson, have you seen Katie? Not since lunch. Uh, Governor, would you like some coffee? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the house. I don't know what to do about Katie. She's so concerned about the beavers. How do you make a child understand? How do you make the beavers understand? Well, that's true. That's even harder. <laughs> Governor, about the house, you know, there's a lot of waste that goes oh, on yeah. here. For example, did you know that there are two third-floor maids? The governor's mansion has to be immaculate, Benson. But there is no third floor. (laughs) Governor, if the state is run the way this house is run, the beavers are lucky to be leaving. You think I'm a terrible governor, don't you, Benson? Well, I can't say, sir. I haven't seen you govern. You think I'm an idiot? That I've seen. (laughs) You're probably right. I probably am an idiot. God knows I feel like one most of the time. See, I'm not really cut out for this, Benson. No. I was very happy running my paper mill. They came to me and said I had to run for governor. I owed it to the people. Well, it's true that the people haven't had an honest governor in years. So they came to me and they said that it was my duty to run. Well, I never thought I'd win. I never won anything in my life. So I ran. And I won. So now I'm the governor, and the people have somebody honest in the capital. I might not be much else, but I am honest. And I've done my duty, and everybody's happy but me. 
because some of the time I don't understand what's going on. And most of the time I feel like an idiot. And all the time I'm scared. Bob Metz, uh, sometimes are you scared about what's going on? Um, in the world, you mean? In, I know, I'm talking or, about what you, you've chosen as a profession, which is political advocacy. Not in that sense, no. I, I've, I maybe was at the beginning. I'm not anymore. I have a total confidence in, what shall I call it, my vision. Okay, I understand it. I understand it from its root to its completion. I've had a 30-some-odd-year experience in, in testing it in the, in the political waters, in the, in the marketplace. Um, we've put everything that I've ever done politically. One of my first rules I learned in politics was record everything you do or you didn't do it. Oh, I'm going to ask you about that, that was later one of the on. things yeah. I had to teach Mark Emery because until we started recording, until I became his Watson, he didn't exist as a Mark Emery. <laughs> okay, that's how it started. Actually, it started, um, uh, if I could sure. interject, uh, with the two newspapers that both you and Mark started in London. I mean, not everybody is ready to go out there and say, I'm going to start a newspaper today. Uh, media and politics, has, politics have always gone hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk to us uh, about uh, the London Tribune and the London Metro Bulletin, which you both started? Well, the the, the, the Metro Bulletin was an offshoot of the uh, the bankruptcy of the London Tribune, but the London Tribune was a weekly newspaper uh, envisaged by Mark Emery three months before it launched on the first weekend in September. I forget of exactly what year, but this would be going back to. 80, 82 maybe? 82-ish, 80, some, somewhere in there. And um, it was amazing what he put... 1980, actually, yeah, it says okay. It was amazing what Mark put together within that one summer. And above what used to be the Bel Air Music downtown at the corner of King and Richmond, uh, the paper occupied the top two floors of that building. And um, Mark had hired an editor. I wasn't involved in it except as an investor. I never even wrote for the paper or anything like that. And uh, but I was encouraging it along, and and um, it's and we got other people involved. I was on the board of directors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, and the paper became very popular and controversial in its first several weeks, and things were looking really good. Then suddenly, because of our popularity and controversialness, and the fact that. A lot of the advertisers, I guess, realized we weren't traditional uh, liberals, conservatives, or New Democrats. They started pulling out. Simple as that. And they found us too controversial. You can't say that about that. That's my candidate. What does that say you about know? the London Free Press and other newspapers? Says about, that's what it told me about all newspapers, including ours. Uh -huh. Let's face it, they're all political vehicles to get somebody's political uh, concept out there. Otherwise, I don't think newspapers would exist at all in the form that we have known them for a couple hundred but years. But not only that, they can't be controversial. Um, Otherwise well, you scare away investors. Well, correct? it wasn't so much controversy. That's the word they use to scare you away, or they say you're extreme or fundamentalist or something. What they're really worried about is you're, t you're saying something that doesn't agree with my candidate. <laughs> okay, My candidate says X, and you're saying Y, and that's controversial. Mm -hmm. And whether you're right or wrong is irrelevant. It's just that it's not their candidate. And so, and most people didn't see government in the way I had learned to see it. As if one of the first things I, I wanted to figure out, like, what is this thing called government that everybody's just talking about here, like it's some department of something. You well, know? tell me, what do you think government is? At least w back then, when you first discovered government. 
I didn't see it as anything except uh, a, a law and order keeper, something that kept care of the roads and stuff like that. Um, and let's face it, up until the Trudeau years, the government was not the major player in the economy that it is today. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't seen as as being that, even though it had had been growing for obviously a century, but not not to the extent we're seeing today. So that's all I saw government as. And the idea of government manipulating the economy was just a given. Um, that wasn't, you know, we saw the, the value of the dollar going up. That's another learning experience was when René Lévesque got elected in Quebec, I was still in the banking industry. That was the first day that the Canadian dollar went below the American dollar and stayed there forever. Up until then, we were a dollar five to to one dollar U.S. as long as I remembered, mm-hmm. and it didn't kill the economy. You mentioned to me when I first met you, not long after this period, uh, I met you in 1986, um, that when you're trying to explain to somebody new to politics, they have to understand one fundamental idea about government, and that it is an instrument of force. Mm-hmm. That's kind of lost on a lot of people until you give them a few demonstrations and you know I always think of government as a gun G is for government G is for gun right and whatever you're going to do with government you have to think of as a gun what would you do with a gun legitimately well yes you would uphold the law and order Mm -hmm. legitimately with a gun you would arrest criminals with a gun you would defend your country with a gun those are correct and appropriate things to do with justice you would enforce contracts if you needed to with someone who was uncompliant, eventually with a gun. Every law, no matter how large or small, ends up at the point of a gun. That's what makes it a law. And this distinction is lost on a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people think government can be run like a business. They think government and business are the same thing, and they operate on two totally different principles. And that's the funny thing about that clip we heard from Yes Minister, you know. Oh, what, you mean you're going to do something on pure principle? Well, yeah, they did do something on pure principle, but the wrong principle. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was the other thing to discover. Not just what do you operate on principles? Do you operate pragmatically? What what is the thing? No, you do what's right, and and the two things should be the same. They should never be in conflict with each other. And that's another contradiction that should never be accepted in politics. Just running the newspapers, being in touch with Mark Emery and his bookstore. I'm sure you had a lot of influences, philosophic influences, in common with Mark. Uh, can you name some of the people uh, influential in your life right then? Um, in terms of authors or in terms of people personally? In Not personally. Uh, I'm talking uh, about the, uh, the philosophic influences which drove Mark to write the newspaper articles that he did, which drove you to invest in him, which drove you to create the Freedom Party of Ontario. Well, you know, it's funny. Mark discovered Ayn Rand before I did, but read her after I did. <laughs> And we've just had this confirmed recently. Mark just confirmed it through Paul McKeever from his jail cell down in Mississippi. (laughs) And he says he remembers, uh, after he had asked me to run for him politically, I said, well, I don't know anything about politics. What am I going to say? It's a federal election, by the way, that I was was Mm -hmm. running in at the time. And he turns around, and there's a copy of Ayn Rand's uh, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. He just grabs it, hands it to me like this. He says, here, read these three chapters in the middle of the book somewhere and they had to do with the issues of the day I even forget what they were and uh, I read the whole book I was amazed I'm going wait a minute this thing is amazing and I came back to him and I said hey you should read this because I find out Mark hadn't read it yet so he was he was giving out books that he hadn't really read but he had just heard sort of second hand mm-hmm. that they were that they were what we were looking for well, he and read, then he kind of discovered everything slowly over time later as well we he ran a second hand bookstore of course yeah 
<laughs> yes. Didn't know what that's, that's what it meant. And then he got into the business of uh, buying Ayn Rand books all wholesale, brand new, by the truckload, mm -hmm. and selling them at wholesale prices just to get the philosophy out. And, uh, you know, Mark was an inspiration to me in a sense of watching one guy, what he could accomplish. Even if he wasn't always doing the right thing, but he was doing something. He was being active. He was getting the attention. And if he found something that he was doing incorrect and someone told him, hey, you're doing this wrong, he changed just like that. Suddenly he switched to what he realized now was the correct thing. And I admired that at all times. And I was, I was almost envious of it. I was a bit envious of his ability to be so spontaneous as well in front of a crowd or a, on on a news media thing i was terrible i couldn't uh, you couldn't get me in front of a camera or a microphone if you tried in those days it was torturous for me mm -hmm. now of course ayn rand wasn't the only influence i understand no, no. that you had a, a great influence from comic books of all places yes but again you know if you go to the root as i find out later in life it was ayn rand again right because you had steve ditko uh -huh. and stan lee and mostly the marvel comics were the first group of comics i was interested in i never got into comics with the dc group because they were just pretty well you know two-dimensional as they called them right and with the marvel comics came in that third dimension character and philosophy and here were all these superheroes uh in the, between their blows, you know, that's one thing you could do in a comic book. Eh? They'd, they'd be philosophizing, making these great speeches between each uh, bang, you know, bang, pop, pow, and then he'd be given this great speech. And the speeches were awesome, and they were worth reading over and over again. And uh, then as I discovered later in life, uh, they were influenced by other philosophers that I had to set out on a road to discover myself and then find out how they really applied to the real world and why they were still important. We're going to uh, take a break now, but when we come back, we're going to explore how this uh, discovery of a philosophy of Ayn Rand and uh, yeah. of, of Steve Ditko and the like and Isabel Patterson and, uh, uh, affected you and caused you to affect a lot of other people through mm -hmm. politics. Now, 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 just so our listeners know, this, this uh, upcoming clip right now is from 1988. So that's yes. a while back. It's a collage of yes, and it was a uh, it was it's four minutes of what was actually a sixteen or seventeen minute special on on Channel Ten London. I don't even know what they were then. But I don't think they were the A Channel yet. And it was a feature called Behind the News, and they were doing an in between election kind of thing on Freedom Party. Mm -hmm. And um, what I find interesting about this clip and the one we'll be coming back to after the break is we'll hear a difference in the way the media basically looks and covers Freedom Party between then when we started and basically today. Okay, we'll be back right after this. It's a long, hard climb to the Freedom Party's provincial headquarters. Perhaps symbolic of the long, hard climb the party still faces before it reaches political respectability and achieves its goal of getting government off the backs and out of the wallets of the people. Freedom in a political context means only that you're free from the coercive uh, force of government to predetermine your choices. It doesn't mean you're free from your obligations to your landlord or free from your obligations to your family or to your job or to any of those things. Those are obligations that each of us in the course of our life assume either directly or indirectly on a voluntary basis. That's the whole point of freedom is that freedom in itself, if it's properly defined, limits the action of an individual within a free society. In other words, I can't be free unless you're free, unless the people out there are free, each individual. Otherwise, freedom has no meaning. Well, 
our job is, and especially what my job is, to educate them that freedom is indivisible, that certain aspects of freedom they feel comfortable or more importantly that they see themselves benefiting by. You know, people who like to read adult magazines feel they benefit from no censorship. Uh, people who are in the import-export business feel they're going to benefit from free trade. What they don't go one step further and do is they don't see how it's also the same principle that will allow other people to benefit in areas uh, where they're not concerned. Like a lot of people who believe in free trade don't support the right to smoke marijuana, and yet the two are indivisible. Heavy ideas. In the era of the 30-second clip and the photo opportunity, the Freedom Party doggedly plugs away at getting its message across to the voter. Amory and Metz and the 350 other Freedom Party members in Ontario are in this for the long haul, and they're determined to stay in it, whether it takes 5, 10, or even 20 years. So we decided we were going to take it slow. We were going to start organizing on a grassroots level in communities where we could be there essentially on a full-time basis. And we do most of our campaigning and activity and education programs between elections. And that's why we're here on a full-time basis. The recent garbage strike in London was an ideal opportunity for the Freedom Party to demonstrate how its vision would work not content to be held hostage, as party officials put it, by City Hall and striking outside workers, the Freedom Party hired a truck and collected garbage from some neighborhoods. This is what we thought of as a, mo a constructive protest. It's a way of saying, listen, we don't feel that we should be blackmailed either by the city or by the union or by anybody about essential services. And yet rather than, you know, take petitions or protest or picket or something like that, we thought, what a better, what more constructive way of going about it than picking up people's garbage and showing that they don't have to say, oh, we surrender. The Freedom Party is in favor of contracting out garbage collection to private enterprise to increase competition, reduce costs, and keep the taxpayer from being held hostage during labor disputes. While collecting garbage during a strike may have been popular with some, the Freedom Party's stand in favor of Sunday shopping tends to be unpopular with many. Hello, here's a brochure supporting your right to shop on Sunday. No, and don't like it at all, it's bad. Well, what are you buying things for? Metz has been a Freedom Party candidate in the last two provincial elections. Eleven candidates ran across the province last time around. The party only expects to get one or two percent of the vote. The important thing is to field candidates. There's the element of political credibility. Um, can you be electable in the immediate future? Well, that's something when we started this party we knew would be at least a decade or two away. Because uh, credibility in an election is a totally different, it isn't really that related to your ideas directly. It's related more to the credibility of the organization behind the ideas and its consistency and its ability to be there election after election. Coming up, Paul McKeever of the Ontario Freedom Party. Well, he's the man in the man cave with some proposals for reforming auto insurance. You'll want to hear what he has to say right after the break. Paul, uh, you're scaring me because I'm going, wait a minute. Am I applauding the Freedom Party of Ontario? Because you're making a whole lot of sense here. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Health care is an exploding issue, and it is uh, an elephant in the room. Okay, uh, Andrew Horvath, news conference just moments ago, uh, saying uh, we got to have a public inquiry. Is Kathleen Wynne going to bite? Uh, no, she won't, but she's still going down. 
Paul McKeever, I have to tell you, uh, the, the Freedom Party of Ontario and this man, some of the most sensible staff I've ever heard. Uh, and I say this as someone who has trouble voting for any particular party, but uh, really, a lot of common sense and objective analysis of what is going on. He's a politician and a lawyer. And uh, always great fun to have here. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, Michael. How are and you? a man with the finest beard in Canadian politics. <laughs> I thank you for that. <laughs> and welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM, where you can join our conversation at 519-661-3600 or drop us a line at feedback at justrightmedia.org. I'm joined in studio by my special guest, Robert Metz. We're talking about the Freedom Party of Ontario, and I find it interesting in that very last clip where we heard from David Menzies, uh, Andy Udman, yes. and uh, Michael Corrin talking about Freedom Party. And uh, David Menzies was talking to Michael uh, to uh, Paul McKeever, and it's just ironic, I guess, that at this very moment, yes, McKeever is in right the now. man cave, yes. uh, Menzies' man cave, recording a show for tomorrow's publication. Yes, and what a subject that's on. The Carla Homolka case, believe it or not. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Paul just recently um, did a video that he put up on Freedom Party's website on the uh, Hamoka case and at uh, Gordon Dom's uh, dinner that... Uh, Which that was hosted was by Freedom Party. Yes, hosted yes. by Freedom and Party, yeah. Part of that archive that Paul has put together, he basically came into Freedom Party quite a while ago now, but he gathered all those... Remember I said we recorded everything that we did. Well, he's been, you know, doing it and uh, basically archived everything for us and has put it online so that now, this year, for the first time ever... Everybody, anywhere in the public who has access to the Internet, can go on freedomparty.on.ca. They'll see a button there saying Recent and Archive, and there is the entire history going right back. And I'm not just talking about written. There's newsletters, there's audio, there's video, there's all the conversations. There's a tremendous had. amount it, of it's, material it's, there. There's, it, it is unprecedented. No other political party can match it. No other political party can match our record of action. We didn't get elected, you know, as a, as, as a political party, but boy, did we, we won almost every ad hoc issue that we undertook, and I can only think, think of two minor ones that we didn't win. I'll get into that in a second, yeah. but um, I find it interesting. If you go on to the Liberal Party's website, the PCs, the NDPs, w normally what happens with those websites is that as soon as there's a leader change, as soon as there's a policy decision change, the website gets changed, it's erased, and it never existed. And they act as if it never existed. The only time you'll find the history of these parties is if you go into the uh, newspaper archives. Something that the these parties do not keep and do not publicize, but you have archives of every single media release, every single word that has ever come out of Freedom Party has ever been reported on Freedom Party. That's it's great. on our website at um, freedomparty.on.ca. And I say our because I also am a member of Freedom Party, and I joined uh, you and Mark and a host of others back in 1986, two years after the party started on a momentous day, January 1, 1984. Yes, the Orwellian Very, year. <laughs> How could you pick a better day to start, eh? Better day to start a Freedom Party, for yes. sure. The thing is, though, uh, at the time... Uh, that I joined uh, just soon after the party was formed, the question was always, is society ready for freedom? You actually had um, quite a, a talk of, with the early organizers about the, the use of the word freedom, and it was quite controversial within our inner circle that should we be using this because some people think of freedom as, oh, here comes another 
you know, politician wanting to free me, much like Hitler freed the, the Poles and communists freed well, I, you you know, the Poles. And uh, you probably learned that maybe partially from me, because I used to get that very reaction, especially from Eastern Europeans, mm -hmm. and my parents included. You know, oh yeah, the, 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 the Nazis came to free us, and the, and the Russians came to free us, and the Americans came to free us, and, and it wasn't good news in either case, because they were in a war situation. So define freedom, as far as the Freedom Party goes to And... Well, that was a learning experience again. Um, uh, you know, freedom is basically... Actually, I, actually don't, I, I don't want to define it right now. I want, I want to stick to this story first, because okay. the story is more important. Um, I had to learn about freedom. I, I, you know, you, you can't just give someone a def definition and say freedom means non-intervention in other people's lives, or, or economic freedom, or life, liberty, and property. I mean, all those things are. Um, I could go to, to John McMurray, who says freedom is a condition. I learned all of those things. Right? A philosopher, Scottish philosopher. A, a philosopher. Um, in politics, though, freedom freedom is basically, uh, does, does concern itself with life, liberty, and property. But the problem with that is that you can't make those the primary. And that's what's, or, or their opposite, anti-life, anti-liberty, anti-property, which is uh, literally what the other parties are about. They would be the uh, no property, no, no liberty parties. Using uh, the government's gun for yes. nefarious reasons. In fact, I recall uh, uh, Paul McKeever commenting to, to Jim Chapman uh, here in London in an interview before Dalton McGinty ever got elected the first time, and he said the, the most frequent, wor fre frequent word in the, in, the, in the liberal playbook was the word ban. <laughs> right? <laughs> ban, 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 ban. And he was correct, and it just, that was a complete uh, history of banning things what were formerly um, consent. Consent was our, our flagship newsletter that we, we realized was a fundamental, um, that's the social application of freedom, that you have to work in a consensual environment, right? And no one was using these words, and no one was talking that way. Everyone was just talking like government was this gun that you just, you know, ordered people around with. You could tell them what to buy, who to buy it from, as, as if these things were as normal as, as any other daily activity. There was a cartoon on the Freedom Party office wall, which, by the way, to, to the Londoners listening, is in London, Ontario, the only political party in Ontario headquartered, headquartered yeah. outside of Toronto. Um, and anybody, by the way, can drop down drop down there. I know you keep odd hours down there, but um, if anybody wants to go I'll down and have an a talk to Bob. Pop in, yeah. yep. But uh, there's a cartoon on the wall, and it said um, democracy, and, and underneath it was a, a crowd holding up banners saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. Oh, yes, that was a Toronto uh, Sun uh, Donato cartoon. Yes. And it was the single picture or single image, I guess, that typified majority rule democracy and it just had the word democracy above it with a crowd just screaming gimme gimme and that was the whole cartoon and I said wow that is more insightful than most of the philosophy I see in the newspapers these days that pretty well says it and yet I would ask myself okay if everybody knows that we're all a greedy bunch of you know what why do we keep behaving that way why don't we stop? Why don't we want a good government? Why do we keep wanting this something for nothing? What drives us into that frenzy until our children end up paying the price for the things we're doing? And this is the thing about politics. Politics is a... You're not going to... Whatever I did in 1980s is only bearing fruit now. What I'm doing today will not bear fruit till much in the future. Politics is not an instant overnight success kind of... Or failure kind of thing, even. Mm -hmm. It takes time to 
to uh, to see what the ultimate effects of those policies are. Well, you already and mentioned that you've been successful, so you don't have to necessarily win elections to influence change. Yes, you do. Um, in fact, that was a mistake I made, and and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, it was just like again in that clip we heard where she says, well, you don't have to have 50, uh, 50 reforms. Just how about one reform? Just work on one. Well, that was the approach we did, and we knew that because we wouldn't be electable for a few decades, because I just understood the, the nature of the inertia that we were up against, and we we're starting from scratch. You know, three guys in a room. Let's take over the country. Forget it. It just doesn't work like that, except in fictional accounts of uh, make-believe politics but uh, so we knew it was going to be a long-term term situation and so we, we behaved as a lobby group working one issue at a time and what was stunning was our victory rate it was like basically 100 percent for all intents and purposes yeah, we started yeah. with bias we went to the no mm -hmm. tax for pan am we brought sunday shopping to ontario you won uh, the elijah Iliev. we won the case I'm, I'm the first person i keep forgetting about that too you know mm -hmm. uh, first case before the human rights commission yes you were and the first person ever to win a case before the ontario human rights commission correct yeah and uh and I wasn't a lawyer, and, and it was all from learning from this philosophy and learning mostly from, from the principles that I had applied from Ayn Rand. Never mind all the other politicians and all their advice, useless, 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 almost counterproductive. So who was this clique and, of individuals that started the Freedom Party? And, and, and Well, I talked about your well, philosophy. I, I still haven't course. addressed your major question, though. Um, but you said you, you weren't going to define freedom for no, me. No, no. I said you can't win. <laughs> you can't win one issue at a time. You're not going to win freedom ah, that yes, way. Yes. Okay, you have to have... Uh, and that's what—that's where the idea of a, the necessity of a political party was was thrust upon me. It wasn't like, well, let's just do this for fun or on the side. It became a necessity because it was the only way, as you say, to get the right group of people together for a long-term effort. A lot of the people who started with this party have since passed away. Yes. And in a way, I feel I owe them. I owe them a legacy. I owe them that because the party is the legacy. That was the ultimate goal of mine, to create this organization that would make it possible for other people to gather around a solid um, epistemology, metaphysics, the whole deal, because it had to be put in place. It was never put in place by any other political party because parties didn't evolve that way. We didn't evolve from freedom into totalitarianism. We actually came the other way. And now we're going back a little bit, and it's a bit of a back and forth. And uh, unfortunately, when times get tough, the left looks very attractive because the left is always giving money away. And the right doesn't, even though it's the right thing to do and would make things better, much quicker, faster for everybody. But it's just counterintuitive. And that's why we have to count on people who have the knowledge, the understanding, and, and, and the courage to get up in front of the public and say, look, this is how it's got to be. This isn't us. I didn't start a Freedom Party because I had this whimsical idea, and I think, geez, wouldn't it be nice? No, I didn't. I had no idea what it should be like or what it should look like. It had never been done before. It had never been done before, and we started... Uh, going into every movement, we went. We talked to the liberals. We talked to the libertarians. We talked to the conservatives. We talked to the anarchists. Anybody, just to see anybody with a different idea and see, uh, you know, what worked, what didn't. Ad hoc campaigns, and uh, a picture started emerging, a consistency, and then finally, I found a handful of philosophers who were the key um, to learning all about freedom. And, of course, a handful of people, and that was the other secret, too. You didn't need a huge crowd. You only needed two or three key people, and that's still the case with all the major parties today. I don't care whether you're talking about Stephen Harper's party or whatever. Those things are all run by two or three key people. Almost any political action, any action mm -hmm. whatsoever, is just usually six or seven people in a room. Yep. 
coming up, coming up with a decision. And we're going to be talking more about Freedom Party and some of these people when we return right after this break. Sirs, look. Red Dwarf. This is us. It's a TV series about us. It recounts all our adventures, every single one of them. How's this possible? We're characters from a TV series who've somehow escaped the TV world into the real world. That explains why the Dimension Cutter said our reality wasn't valid. I'm not real. I'm a character in a TV series. I'm not real. I'm, I'm, I'm not real. That explains so much. I'm not real either. Does that mean I'm not really this good looking? <laughs> Just typical of my luck, isn't it? Just when things start to go right, it turns out that I'm... I'm not real. Fantastic! Now, now, sir, we need clear heads and equanimity. Naturally, it's extremely disturbing to discover that we are just characters in a TV series. And naturally, there's going to be a period of acclimatization. But it's essential that we keep all this in perspective. We're not real! What are we going to do? There, I think that's pretty much put it in perspective, don't you, sirs? This is too weird for words. to earth that's the story we're in now he's right look there's no disc in it coming soon it's not out yet back to earth takes place after series 10 kachansky's dead and the crew are hailed through a portal and discover they are just characters from a tv series Knowing they will die in the final episode... Die? The dwarfism, best Blade Runner tradition, track down their creators to plead for more life. How are we going to do that? Easy. Hey, birds, give us more life. I'm pleading with you. See? First, the crew attempt to track down the actors... Actors who play them in the series and their metaphysical odyssey begins. All my life, I've wanted to go on a metaphysical odyssey. For years, I never thought I'd get the chance. Well, Bob <laughs> Metz certainly has the chance to go on a metaphysical odyssey with the creation of the Freedom Party of Ontario. And, and, and I've only recently discovered that, ah, we're not real! <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, since that day, you've, you've gone through eight general Ontario elections, and the last election in 2011, the Freedom Party of Ontario ran a slate of 57 candidates, which, by the way, would make them one of only five parties... Uh, which, if all the candidates got elected, could not form... Even um, not even all of them. That's 57. There's 107 seats, yeah. so half of that, whatever that is. 53, I think, is the... 54 would be the number. Um, if they were elected, could form a majority government in Ontario, one of only five parties. From very humble beginnings, you've actually put together quite a party. You and a handful of people. Do you want to talk about some uh, some of these people? Well, there were only a handful and that, I mean, I can't say handful. There, there have been hundreds, hundreds. If not thousands if you're going to talk about that. But in the specific leadership roles, there have only been a handful in that sense because you really don't even want too many more to be honest with you. Um, there was, of course, myself and Mark Emery. We were the ones that 
kicked it off. Um, other people came in. We've had two other interim uh, Freedom Party leaders besides myself. That was a role I had to play when, when we started. And uh, that, of course, was J Jack Plant and Lloyd Walker. And uh, then, of course, Paul McKeever came into the fray later. I would include you among the major players in the party because you've been here since very early in the days and you've been on the executive and you've been an elected trustee and you've been, you went out and did some experimenting yourself with other political parties. Sure, I was um, actually and, the president and, uh, of the London Fanshawe PC Riding right. Association. And, we, and as, a, as, a, as when we were operating, we always entertained that. We didn't mind people experimenting. Let's see, we wanted to see really what would, mm -hmm. what was the best door open for freedom. I didn't care where it was going to come from. I, w I would have been just as happy if, if it was through someone else, but it never was. And it just never turned out that way. And now we've got a new group of people coming into the party. And there's, I, I would never do justice to everyone that's come in. There were, but I, I think mostly of those people who's, who, who picked the leadership spokesman roles kind of thing. Jim Montag would have been one of them. From the London Middlesex Taxpayers yes, Coalition. Yes, and he was a Freedom Party uh, candidate at one time. And he was also working with the Conservative Party and, and with the Liberal Party. He, he was with everybody. Since passed on, unfortunately. He's, yeah, he's passed away, unfortunately. But he was a, a great spokesperson spoke very meticulously taught me a lot about municipal politics yes indeed and one uh, of the reasons i ran for trustee mm -hmm. was jim montag and so the great thing about meeting these people was that they would teach us things from their expertise and, and from their point of view and if we had something in common man that was a great relationship to have because then that would reinforce each person's uh, strengths and and do away with their weaknesses a bit more. But really, there has only been that handful, and there always is. Today, it's, uh, you know, uh, even our executive is limited to seven people, the, the party executive, and because uh, we knew that when crowds got too big in terms of the voting structure and everything, um, you could get into an issue. That was one of the key things that had to be done with the creation of the party, was to create an organization that was capable of running full-time without losing its fundamental reason for having existed. Every other party I observed no longer followed its founding principles, whatever they might have been, its founding purpose, whatever it might have been originally. They've all gone off on different paths, except in the large general picture that almost all of them have gone towards what we call the left or what we call collectivism, more state control. More government control, more, yes. Yeah. Ban, ban, ban. The ban, ban mentality, and which is really not government at all. It's not, and this is a big thing we had to learn too, that is not governing. That is ruling. That is... Um, that's just not governing. Governing is people take care of themselves, and only when you step out of line does the government step in. And that's basically what you need a government for. It's Instead a little being, simplistic to put it that way, but it's it, true. It's but true. people need metaphors. Instead of being mm -hmm. a referee, they're a player. Right. And they shouldn't be. They should be the referee Correct. in the game, the economy. So, with 57 candidates in the last election... One of the top, or actually, you know, the top five parties, you've got the three in, with the seats in, in, in Parliament, you have the Greens, and then there's Freedom mm -hmm. Party. So I suspect that Freedom Party has come into its own. Um, how has the media treated uh, Freedom Party since day one, and, and has it changed? I noticed that, for example, um, Michael Corrin, uh, Sun TV is quite friendly to us. All of that has happened in the last... 18 months to two years mm -hmm. um, since the last election. I really consider election 11 Freedom Party's first. Up until then, 
if it had been our choice, we probably wouldn't have run in elections because we were still in a preparatory stage. But in order to maintain your registration and all that sort of stuff, you had to run. So to us, they were all dry runs. This was the first one. And um, I would say that all that change is, is a consequence of our archive being online. And now they don't take our word for it anymore. They can go and look and go, holy cow, look what we've been missing. Not only that, yeah. the archive also serves as a reality check for all of the misinformation oh, yes. that is out there about Freedom Party. If you ever want to know about the truth, uh, if somebody says about Freedom Party, what their policies are or were, it's all online and documented. As, almost like real time, like getting into it real time. And, you know, you, you ask about a definition for freedom. Well, that wasn't even, we, you know, we used to say freedom is having the right to choose. <laughs> and that's, that's how we, you know, and, and your freedom of choice is at the heart of every political issue. That used to be one of our sayings. But, you know, we still have our, our original statement of principle, which reads, every individual in the peaceful pursuit of personal fulfillment has an absolute right to his or her own life, liberty, and property. And that basically is what the party was founded on and still operates on today, which is a remarkable thing. Uh, given that, we have demonstrated that a party can be a party of principle and be practical at the same time. That and the principles do not conflict with the proper practice. And consistent. And consistent. And that is a fundamental necessity for anybody to gain the respect of the voters, and I think that the Freedom Party has it. And, and you know, surprisingly to me, even, I, I shouldn't say surprisingly, but satisfyingly, I noticed that uh, any all the predictions I used to make in the past on old talk shows, listening to them now, we were right. Our principles work. That was That to me is a test. I can look back. I even predicted the price of gasoline 20 years in advance. I said it's going to level out and it went to get to a buck 20 or something. One and of I your, gave reasons. And that your, was when it was 60 cents a, a, a liter. One of your earlier pieces was we're in for a shock with Ontario, with Ontario Hydro. Hydro. <laughs> one of our first pieces, 1984, we said this is going to be a killer for Ontario. And uh, we, it was a fraud from day one. And it was our major piece. We couldn't get anybody interested in, in that issue. Bob Metz, thanks very much for being my special guest today, and um, I think we're going to get back to normal on next Thursday, okay. where you will co-host with me. So, time is up for today. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, do what Bob Metz says and be right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hello. I'm Representative Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. And I'm former Senator Fred Thompson, 2008 presidential candidate and star of Law and Order. Fred and I may not agree on much, but we do on one thing. Your vote is important. That's why we asked for this time tonight on Saturday Night Live's presidential bash. Nancy's right. Although I still don't know why I had to come into the studio for this. Couldn't we have just done this from my house? Geez, Fred, how lazy can you be? Now, what is that supposed to mean? Well, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people think the reason you didn't win the nomination is that you refused to put in any effort at all. Maybe so. Are we done? I'd like to get out of here.